0: Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. I'm Trevor Dame and as always, it's Matt Feuerstein, my co-host with the most. Um, Matt, we said we'd come back this for this episode a little bit quicker than last time and we didn't, but I think we have a reasonable excuse this time.
1: Yeah, now some people might say, well, everyone is stuck at home. All you have to do is make podcasts and watch wrestling. But no, some of us are working remotely. We're working hard. We're trying to figure out how to do new things in the new world. We're uh, terrifiedly cr- clutching our beds and praying that we and our loved ones don't die of a horrible virus. <laughs> so, um, not a lot of time to watch wrestling. But we're back on the horse. We're but we got our schedules. We're gonna do this. We um, we are ready. Um, I am very ready to talk about this show I actually just finished watching it like five minutes ago so um, happy to be back
0: yeah and uh, I I just I guess it's, it's weird Matt we've been doing this I believe this is going to be I believe this month three years ago was our first episode so I believe this is our three year anniversary I don't think we've ever uh Done a show in the midst of a global pandemic, Matt. Maybe I forgot. Maybe I forgot one, but um, there was that.
1: There was that, that one in uh, in uh, in the, 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 the <laughs> August. Yeah, that last pandemic. Uh, so
0: this is. So that, yeah, sorry. sorry. Go right I was, ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say. Um, That, yeah, it it feels kind of sometimes weird to do things that feel frivolous, but at the same time, during a time like this, but at the same time, it feels like we're all trying to find a new normal during this to like find things, trying to find like the, as much of the normal parts of our old life as we can fit into the current situation. So I just hope that everybody that's listening, I hope that you and yours are uh, doing okay physically and mentally and, uh financially even at this point, because I know that's kind of like the three-pronged attack this has had on everybody, but yeah, hopefully this uh, can take your mind off it for a short time.
1: But yeah, it's like, well, I mean, you know, in some ways, like, we have more time for frivolity, and at least for me, I definitely need it. Like, I, I need to be doing this, and I need to hear other people doing similar things in order to stay, you know, calm, sane, with a uh, tethered to reality. So, um, you know, I, 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 I've had obsessive conversations with friends who are even more paranoid than me about it, that, you know, about all the horrible things going on. So it's nice to just talk about something from a time when people could uh, get together and stand close to each other and watch a thing in the same room and, like, uh, you know, a more an innocent time for, uh, for you and me as well.
0: And the nice thing about being on a podcast network, like the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, is even when you're done here, if you need more hours of distraction, because like Matt just said, like, there's a lot of hours you need to fill with distraction these days, uh, there's so many good podcasts on the network. You don't even have to flip on to a new podcast feed. It's right there, where Snug is a Bug, with a bunch of other different podcast episodes, like... Uh, there's the new the greatness of Randy Savage podcast where Kelly from the old Titans of Wrestling, he's doing more short form podcasts about classic things of Randy Savage and you know who doesn't like Randy Savage and I also want to plug a couple other things real quick that are non um, pro wrestling only podcast network. The first is the 20 years of Nitro podcast asked me if I'd like to be a guest and I said I'd have to take a rain check on that because. I'm hard to deal with, and so I don't want this to be a habit, but I just want to say yes, if you ask me to be on your podcast, I'll probably say no, at least in the short term, and then I'll feel guilty and give you a free plug on our podcast. So don't take don't take advantage of that.
1: I, I have enough trouble getting him to agree to be on this podcast. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: um, And then, Matt, we did – if people don't get enough of you and I together, we did another podcast that now, depending on when you listen to this show, it might already be out. It might be out still a couple days away from coming out, but, uh, Joe Gagne announced this on Twitter last night. So I think it's safe to say we did an episode of Joe Gagne's game show, the five-star match game with, uh, also another guest of the show, Justin Shapiro.
1: Yes. And, uh, I love being on that show. It is so much fun. And I love listening to it, too. So there's so many episodes in the archive you can listen to, even if our episode is not up yet. Highly recommend our good buddy Joe's uh, wonderful wrestling game show.
0: So, yeah, plenty of things to listen to that – I was going to say don't mention the um, COVID-19, but we just started off the show talking about it, and we talked about it a fair bit on the five-star match game. So – but in a, humor, in a humorous way, hopefully – Um and with, but without ado, let's get to the distraction because we did have some wrestling to watch from way back 2004. The show we're covering today is Death Before Dishonor 2, Night 1, because it was a two-night double-shot weekend. This Night 1 took place July 23rd, 2004, at the Mjolnir Building in Hart Park in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, which I believe was like 10 or 15 minutes away from Milwaukee, so basically Milwaukee. It was in front of a reported crowd of 375 fans, and if that sounds low, thats you're, you're correct, you've been paying attention to these shows, or you're just a nerd like me, because I believe that the only shows in Ring of Honor history that did under um, 400 up to this point were the Pittsburgh shows, which they did two of, and then never went back to Pittsburgh again, and I believe maybe the second Ring of Honor show ever, and then maybe one other one that they had to move at the last minute, so you know, under 400 was not good for Ring of Honor, and it's not a coincidence that I believe they did not come back to the Milwaukee area. And in fact, Matt, the number was is even worse than it sounds on paper, because we'll go to the Observer first. The Observer wrote at the time, they debuted in the Milwaukee market on uh, July 23rd, drew about 375 fans. And some of that was paper, as we got reports that people had purchased Ring of Honor tapes in the area as far away as Chicago had gotten two free tickets to the show out of nowhere sent by mail. And then we'll jump quickly to the Pro Wrestling Tour at the time. Ring of Honor will be offering fans who attend the July 23rd event in Milwaukee $5 back if they attend the event in Chicago and present their ticket stubs from both shows in Chicago. So Ring of Honor was really pulling out stops usually that we haven't heard on other shows to try and get as many fans as they could, and they still only drew 375 people.
1: I wonder why. Like, I like Milwaukee's pretty close to Chicago. It seems like ROH became a pretty uh pretty hot in Chicago for a while. I don't know if it was there yet. I guess we'll find out when we read the, when we review the next show. But um it's surprising to me that they did so badly. I guess maybe part of it is the fallout from the Feinstein scandal still.
0: Yeah, we can we'll get into it a little more on the next episode because that's where there's actually a quote from Gabe in the Torch where he kind of talks about this because as we'll get into in that episode, ring of honor was really hoping to do a pretty big audience over the last show, this show and the show that the next night, which would be death before dishonor Two night two. And they fell well short, I believe in all three shows. And I think Gabe's reasoning was something to the effect of, he felt like they just were too focused at this time on, um, getting the new website and tape distribution model up and running. Basically that they had their eye off the ball a bit because they were just dealing with all the fallout from finally really splitting away from Rob Feinstein. I mean, I, I don't know how much of that is just them saying that and how much is that real. I could see either way, but all I know is I don't think they ever went back to Milwaukee.
1: Yeah, it's it's disappointing in the sense of their, the previous show, the one, the last show that we reviewed, Reborn Completion, was probably one of Gabe's like, Greatest achievements, in terms of like booking, you know, in terms of like big angles, hitting and landing, and and everything being in place. So you you know you'd like to see you know good booking and good um, planning and stuff rewarded. Um, and I guess that was a little there's a little bit of a lag time, right, between when something good happens and when you see the fruits of the labor. Because eventually, it was rewarded, right? The good product yeah. did lead to an increase in the audience uh, over the next couple of years.
0: I think the lag time is is the perfect way to put it because I believe Gabe like years and years later, I think he told Dave Meltzer once something to the effect of like his booking philosophy was anytime you push a guy, you have to like wait a year to know if it really takes because – you know, It takes a long time, at least at, back in the old days before I pay-per-views were prevalent and stuff like that for like the tapes and the footage to make its way to enough people that people kind of see what's going on. And I have to imagine, yeah, a period like this where you and I have watched the last few shows and it feels like, oh, Ring of Honor really is in a new era and the booking is probably as good as it's ever been right now, but yet – you know, to fans, they're still probably weeks, depending on where they are, or months away from seeing these shows. And, you know, they're getting shows more from, like, right at the start of all the strife, probably. So, yeah, there's this weird delay between the pro- product you make and the reaction to it, which I don't really think exists now because everything is so immediate now.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, you still have PWG, which does not put online shows on, but they also don't really do, like, storylines in the same way that like a standard wrestling promotion does. So they more run on like buzz and the, the names of the guys that are appearing more than any sort of like what's going on in the product right now.
0: Yeah. Just brand reputations. But back, back here, you, you know, you had to kind of like, I remember we talked a few shows back where there was a interview, a shoot interview clip from Samoa Joe, where he talked about like one of his frustrations of the Briscoe's feud was he felt like, People, the crowds weren't reacting, buying into the Bruscos as serious enough. And he was like, well, if they had seen the last few shows where this feud had started, they would be buying into it. But because those shows aren't even on on tape and DVD yet, you know, we're kind of in the middle of an angle without people having even seen the start of it, which just, you know, it's it's a, it's something you have to think back on on this era of Ring of Honor. Like it's a problem or not always a problem, but just like a challenge they had.
1: Yeah, no, I, I would agree. Almost like a like a wrestling challenge. I don't know when I hear that word I just think yeah (laughs) wrestling challenge it was everyone's favorite
0: but uh going to the show itself um one other thing that was different about this show and Gabe mentions it on commentary is he said to make death before dishonor weekend different this year there's going to be no backstage segments so everything here is in the ring and pretty much everything is a match and you don't get it's not a shorter show it's still pushing right up against three hours but it's basically nothing but wrestling and Matt, I don't know about you, but I I kind of missed the backstage segments. Mm, I didn't this time.
1: I, if, if this was like this all the time, I would probably miss them. But I thought for one show, I, I thought it was a nice change of pace personally.
0: I do appreciate them trying to make things different, different shows feel different, and that'll be true for the next show because that's still part of this weekend where for, for so two straight shows, there's going to be no backstage segments, but we do get still in-ring segments. So we open this show in an uncommon way for this era of Ring of Honor, right in the ring in front of the live crowd. Dave Prezak is in the ring. He's the ring announcer for this night because we're in the Midwest. The lighting, and this is something that's apparent right from the start, and Matt, every show lately it feels like There's a different production thing. And this one, the lighting is so bright that when you're watching from the hard cam angle, you can't make out the details on people's faces. It is just blown out completely. So you cannot see um, Dave Bracek's facial expressions, but we can hear him. And he brings up Baron Von Raschke, local favorite, and he introduces as a legend in this area uh von rashke it's a good round of applause from the crowd as well as chants for him uh baron welcomes everyone to ring of honor and he starts going down memory lane only to be quickly interrupted by generation next who receive some booze for doing that um alk shelley snatches the mic away from rashke and he calls him the ghost of wrestling past before he introduces everyone in the stable which he's been doing on all these shows lately every new market you gotta introduce them uh, Shelly says they've been making their names at other people's expenses lately, including at Ricky Steamboat's expense the previous week. Uh, Shelly calls Rash- Rashki decrepit, and then Baron shouts, Do you know what that means, p Brain? which gets a Pee Brain chant from the crowd. Uh, Shelly says they've decided to make their name at Baron's expense tonight. Baron points at each guy and he says, Eeny, Meeny, miny, or mo. He's letting them choose. Before they can come to blows, though, the Second City Saints of CM Punk, Colt Cabana, and Ace Steel hit the ring. They attack Generation X, chase them out of the ring, except for Jack Evans, who gets trapped in the ring and held by A Steel. Uh, Punk gets on the mic at this point. He says there's no way those guys were going to come to the Saints' old stomping grounds of Wisconsin and do this. Uh, Baron puts the claw on Jack Evans to a big pop, which is such one of those weird things that happens in wrestling, those meetings of the generations where Baron Von Ra- yes, Baron von Raschke, at I believe age 63, put the claw on Jack Evans. And then the Baron poses with the Saints and he says to let the new age of Ring of Honor begin. At this point, uh, Baron leaves. Punk gets back on the mic to quickly talk about how the Saints came up in Milwaukee. And he says they're coming in as champions and leaving as champions. Um, Matt, this was kind of Something we've talked about before, I think, where Gabe usually did this almost every time they debuted in a new market where he would do an in-ring segment to start the show that would kind of introduce some of the major stars you'd be seeing in a key match later. Maybe bring in an old local favorite to say hi and kind of a formula beginning for a new market.
1: It was fun. Um, the, yeah. the man did a Generation X look short. Um, compared to Baron von Raschke, and you know, it also what it did was it gave the chance to keep the Generation Next Saints feud going, even though you know that they didn't have a match with each other on this night. So it served a bunch of purposes. I thought it worked just fine, um, and I, I thought Baron von Raschke was very entertaining.
0: Yeah, it was. It, it was funny. Like I, I forget, I was if it was in the Observer or the Torch, but there was someone saying something like. They were saying it's weird to watch a guy goose stepping and getting a big pop, but like it makes sense if you know Baron von Raschke. And
1: this was also, yeah, you it, know, like just what, a few weeks after JBL got in trouble for doing it in Germany, right?
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> well see, he didn't make a career of it. That's that that was his fatal error, Matt. And of course, maybe the location, maybe. Yeah, I'm maybe. thinking I'm thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> um but that brings us to the first match because, again, no backstage segment, so we're getting right to the action after that first segment. Uh, four corner survival match. Trent Acid defeated Ace Steel, Delirious, and Matt Seidel, who was escorted to the ring by Daisy Hayes. He wins in 9 minutes 21 seconds when he pinned Delirious after hitting an inverted brain buster. Uh, Matt, this was the start of a little mini angle on this double shot where I guess they had promoted on the website and they also mentioned on commentary that Trent Acid is the king of the multi-man match, which feels like a complete invention just for this double shot weekend. And that Trent had promised to win both of the matches. Spoiler, this weekend he wins both um, multi-man matches and gets kind of an ill-fated match against Samoa Joe as a result. Um, Matt, what did you think about this first of two big multi-man matches for Trent Acid.
1: Yeah, I guess we'd have to go back and look at the record books to see if this has any bearing in history, that Trent Acid would be the king of the multi-man matches. But I did notice that he came out... Like, after last week, he was he was Backseat Boys, Trent Acid, and now he's back to being all dirty and grimy again, with, like, a random, like, rag in his back pocket and stuff. Um And he's, like... And he's being a heel, right? He's poking people in the eye, and, um... But he's very sloppy. I, I don't. Did you notice that? Like he was just like really sloppy on oh, this oh, yeah. on the show. He, did, he does an Asai moonsault onto Ace, but he pretty much misses it completely and lands in the crowd. And like this, and just like I feel like the match like kind of followed suit. There's a lot of sloppiness. But Saida look did look very good, and him and Delirious did their like their mat wrestling stuff. And um, even Delirious, like, he went for a crossbody. Ace was supposed to catch him, but he just fell over for a two count. I don't know if that was intentional. Um, I don't think it was. Um, no. Sydal's really the only one that looked particularly good. Um, there was one of the weirdest Tower of Doom spots ever. Um, like, Acid tried to do a reverse Rana on Sydal, who was on Delirious's shoulders. I, I, I don't know what happened, but it did not look good. Um, Delirious hit the shadows over Hell on Ace, but Sidal broke it up. Then Acid took Sydal out of the ring with a Yakuza kick... Um, Ace hit the spinal shock off the middle rope, but Acid stopped him from pinning, and then Seidel does a big flip dive onto Ace and all of a sudden, and then Acid hits the inverted brain buster on Delirious for the pin. Um, it wasn't unentertaining, but honestly, probably the most entertaining part was when Gabe was talking about Delirious's lizard face, and Mill Mascaris said... That Mas always wore his mask everywhere and Gabe said, Yeah, but he just had the face of a Mexican. And even <laughs> Nulty was like taken aback by how like over the top that statement was. And I did not expect it coming from Gabe. Um I remember one time Punk said something like that about the uh about the SAT and Gabe like was like, What are you talking about? Why would you say that? And now what what is Gabe trying to be punk? I don't even know. But yeah, that was, that's my take on the match. Not, not
0: unentertaining, extremely sloppy. I thought this was an average match and I completely agree where I, I felt like it was really sloppy. In fact, I, it was kind of surprising, although maybe knowing how their careers turned out, it shouldn't be. But like the two veterans in this match were the sloppy guys. It was, you know, acid and steel. And the two younger guys who were still breaking in, like Seidel especially, were the guys who looked better, especially when they were working each other, although they were doing you know those kind of fast, overly rehearsed looking scrambly sequences that you get a lot of times from two guys that wrestle each other all over the country. But with with scrambles, it's or these kind of multi-man spot fests, they are the match more than any other where I'll forgive some sloppiness sometimes if they're just going for big, exciting moves. And this was one of those four-ways where some four-ways and multi-mans. They try and just do slow, like pair off wrestling for a few minutes before they get to the crazy spots. And I kind of like a match like this where after the first minute, they're just like, we're going to cut out that middle, that first, the opening part of these matches. We know what you want to see. And the last eight minutes of like a nine minute match, we're just them going crazy. And again, lots of it, like you said, was sloppy. But I at least, I think the ambition made it entertaining. Um, and yeah, Matt Seidel just, one of the most fluid, graceful high flyers, that move, that dive he does over the top that you talked about, he does like a rotation right at the end, but it's always in such a smooth motion. Like it starts and ends exactly when it's supposed to. And it always feels like there's so many guys, they do really cool high flying moves, but it feels like they're either ending it way quick just to be safe, or they're barely pulling it off and they almost break their neck. And even from this age, like Matt Seidel, it always feels like, it ends exactly how it was supposed to, and like he makes it look easy, even though it's not easy at all, I am sure. Um, but yeah, s- sloppy to beat. This very sloppy, especially one other spot you didn't mention. I don't even know how to describe this, but um, Trent Acid throws one of the slowest, worst-looking punches or clotheslines I've ever seen, to the point where, Matt, I can't tell if he was trying to throw a punch or a clothesline. It was like, like a halfway... Really slow, really ugly looking. And yeah, it's it's one of those things sometimes you see guys where you go, Why didn't they do better in a company? And we can see here, you know, Trent Ass is getting a little bit of a mini push and Yeah. He's like, I, I, this was far of his, from his best
1: performance. He's, he's, like, falling apart. Like, the last match was also sloppy, and, yeah, it's weird timing for him to get a push because he's clearly, like, doing worse than he had at any point previously. You know, I, I don't want to speculate on why. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that have been said about Acid, so I'm not saying anything, but, like, yeah. clearly what we see is his performance, and that, that's, that's the only thing we can say for sure, and it's definitely below what it had been in pretty much all of 2003.
0: Yeah, because when you think about stuff like the two homicide matches in two thousand three, you know those aren't perfect matches, but night and day difference from this. Um, next up, we're, we'll go to a match that we actually is not on the DVD, but just for history's sake, I should note there was one match that did not make the DVD. I'm assuming for time reason and time reasons, and that was the great Kazushi. Defeated Sean Davari in six minutes, 41 seconds. I have to assume this was just for time reasons. Uh, the Great Kazushi worked both nights of this double shot. He was Kazushi Miyamoto from All Japan Wrestling. He was kind of uh, between stints there, I believe, at this time. And I think his match is on the next DVD. I'm not sure. I think that one makes tape. But yeah, the, I don't think I have to imagine that it's no big loss that we did not see uh, The Great Kazushi versus Sean Daivari. The uh, the second match on the show, uh, or third match I guess, the second we're seeing, would be the Ring of Honor pure title match, which is an immediate rematch from the last show. Doug Williams successfully defends the title, defeating Alex Shelley again via pinfall in 16 minutes, 47 seconds, with the Chaos Theory suplex. Um, Matt, I would say, I would describe this match as a good match that I think would probably be better if I hadn't just watched their previous match on the last show, because I felt like in a lot of ways this was very similar to their last match. And it was kind of a, not, you know, I would rank this as a good match, but it, it's an inferior version in my opinion of the match. We had just seen them wrestle. It's kind of the same structure where they're um, doing kind of a lot of mat work at the start that doesn't really go anywhere. And then about halfway through, they start more trading just moves and focus less on the submissions and um, Alex Shelley's working over the neck of Doug Williams, just like them last match, even to the point where he's doing a lot of the cool key spots. He did in that match. He's doing here again, like the double stomp from the top rope to the back of a uh, Williams head, the, like the 10 where he just does 10 over and over knee drops to his back of his head. He's, he's just lifting spots directly. Um, Williams does the spot again to Shelley where he ties up in knots and he can't get out and nothing in the match is bad. It's just, I kept thinking there's not much in this match I could point to and say it's different or even as good or better than their first match. And the other thing I would say, the one thing that is different is in this match, unlike the first one they had, both guys use all three rope breaks each, but even that it doesn't really go much of anywhere. Um, after they use all three rope breaks each Shelly gets uh, Williams in a submission, but uh, Williams quickly gets out of it. And it does play into the end, but in a weird way where, At the very end, um, Shelly is down two, he still has one rope break left, and uh, Doug Williams goes to hit his Chaos Theory German suplex, which is his finisher, where he kind of grabs the guy in the waist lock and pushes him into the turnbuckle and then springs back out and does like a rolling German suplex on him, and Shelly grabs the rope and uses his third rope break, so you feel like, okay, this is telling a story, but then all that happens is Williams immediately goes for to get the chaos theory suplex again. This time he kind of just yanks Shelley off the rope, so he's not gripping anymore. Shelley then rolls through. You know he survives; he doesn't get hit with it. And then Williams just hits him with tries the third time. Third time wins. So it was kind of this weird thing where it was like, okay, the, the third rope break technically is part of the story of the match, but it didn't really feel like like the rope breaks. The loss of rope breaks was what's was what was stopping Shelley from not losing this match but still in my opinion good match it's just if you've seen the last match they had you don't need to see this one hmm
1: i um i definitely like this a lot more than you um I thought it was of a similar quality to the first match. I didn't think it was exactly the same. But more than anything, I just love these two guys. Like, I, I just think their work is so good. You know, I love Doug Williams. I love that they were able to get the crowd into this thing where they were, like, exchanging nerve holds. Like, how often do you see that? Where, like, someone does a nerve hole and the crowd is into it. Never mind the two guys are, like, going back and forth with them. Um So I really love that. Um, there were some things that I thought were interesting like early in the match Shelly got the border city stretch um, but the announcers and the crowd barely reacted and it seemed like Gabe didn't even realize it was the border city stretch because Gabe like right after that was like he likes to set up for that border city stretch while (laughs) Doug was in the border city stretch like I I mean did you notice that because I thought that was very strange
0: Um, it it was especially weird because this just to mention for a second this you mentioned the crowd I thought this crowd for this match, they were, like, a really cool crowd. Like, they were doing, like, very respectful, but you could tell they were in, into it. applause after basically every submission. It was, like, a very different kind of crowd reaction.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and one thing I would notice is, like, Shelly wasn't really being a heel here, like, at all. Like, he didn't he didn't have Generation X with him. Like, he was really taking the match seriously. I still think that he should have been the champion at, during this time. I still don't really... It's like even if like he lost, like just have him win it here. Even like I feel like it would have done something for him, and I don't really see this as doing much for Doug Williams. Again, I guess we we mentioned at the last show, like maybe it's just to add some credibility because Doug Williams was very credible. I don't know, but I thought that I still think that Shelley would have benefited more. Um, but um, I like that when Williams did like a big comeback. He did his um, like his British like Dodger sequence where he went through the legs and stuff. I think that's like for a big babyface comeback. You don't usually see it done with chain wrestling, and I enjoyed that very much. Um, but yeah, I mean, what you said is all true. I just liked it more. You know what I mean? Like I just, yeah, I just think that there. I just this this really tickles me. Yeah, I guess I'm still stuck in 2004, but I enjoyed it very much.
0: Yeah, I, I think again, it wasn't even. Uh- if I had just, like, I like this match, but I feel like if I had watched this a year from the show we had just watched, I probably would have be closer to your enthusiasm. But I just kept, com- you know, and maybe that's my fault. I just kept comparing it to the last match these two had, which I, I really liked quite a bit. And I thought this one wasn't quite as good. But, Matt, I think the one thing we can agree on is Mark Nolte's Gordon Soli impression is frighteningly bad. He un- un- unveils it here and... Uh, it is not good. Um, oh yeah, I did. I did make
1: mention of that. Um, I also just, why did he do it? I don't understand what was his. What was he going for here?
0: So yeah, that's that match. Um, after the match, Williams asks for a handshake. Shelley teases giving one, but instead he just dashes past him. So he, even though he wasn't healing it up uh, really strongly in the match, like you said, still has to remind us at the end he's a heel. And that brings us to the next match. Low-key's return match, although it's weird calling this a return match because he did technically actually wrestle once, one other match earlier in 2004, that four-way where Joe, B.J. Whitmer, Dan Moff, and him, where they added him at the last second because they wanted to try and increase ticket sales. But we get his, kind of, his first match back on this run in Ring of Honor. The Rottweilers of Low Key and Rocky Romero, with Julia Smokes in their corner, defeated BJ Whitmer and Dan Moth via submission in 1656. When Romero made Moth tap out to a cross arm breaker, uh, Matt. Before I throw it to you, I'll just say before the match starts, uh, Allison Danger enters the ring right and right after Moth and Whitmer do, and she gets on the mic to give them one last chance to keep the prophecy together. Uh, Moth tells her to fuck you and he tells her to get her ass out of there. She obliges, but not before saying that they'll be sorry. Uh, turns out on this night, we'll talk to about it a little bit. She was the one, unfortunately, that was sorry. Um, Matt, what did you think? You know, there's a lot of history between, um, low key and Moth, especially here. Yeah.
1: I-, I liked how hard hitting the match was. It did feel a little bit directionless at times, um, I thought it was good at the end, but one thing that I, that I found strange was, like, Loki, this was his first match back as, like, in a new role, and he was just, it was just, like, a match, like, just a mid-card match. I thought that was kind of strange. Like, he just felt like a guy immediately, but maybe in some ways that's good, like, let him just be part of the mix, bring him down a peg or two, but it still felt weird to me. Um, that said the crowd was pretty hungry for moth vs. loki they were excited to see it and they you know they were trading hard chops and stuff and like kicks and you know what you want to see from them i just thought that the match you know kind of went in um kind of just like a little bit meandering directions the one thing i would say it was cool seeing like loki you know for the first time be a heel you know doing low blows and stuff like that but mostly he was doing his stiff chops um it's funny um mark nolte says that harley race thinks whitmer is one of the brightest up-and-coming stars in wrestling and gabe agrees (laughs) and like i don't know how many people thought that at the time i guess a bunch of indie promoters did um whitmer had a good indie career um he never i don't think became a big star um would you say his peak was sort of 2006 2007 with the um czw and then jimmy jacobs feud that was probably like the peak of bj whitmer Yeah, Uh,
0: I would say Jimmy Jacobs feud in my my mind. I mean, I would need to rewatch those. But if you just ask me off the top of my head, what I feel like was probably when he was most popular, I would probably say Jimmy Jacobs, you know, the tag and then feud.
1: And the CDW feud for sure. He was a big part of that. Um, Yeah. Uh, there was also a moment they were talking about Alice in Danger where Nolte says the only thing harder than getting a woman is getting her to leave sometimes so I'm just thinking like noted ladies man Mark Nolte just can't (laughs) get the women off of him Um, it was just funny to me like imagining that like oh man the the women they just just can't get enough of Mark Nolte Um, but um, like the other Rottweilers uh, oh, yeah, Moth, uh, he poked Key in the eye, too, so he's showing that he's not a total babyface either, but Rattlers were basically taking turns, kicking Moth's shoulders on the floor, and then um, when they take over, uh, Key does his first ever big double stomp, because that's going to be his new big move, and this is the first time I remember him doing it. Did he ever do any double stomps in ROH before this?
0: I'm not sure, but this one, I mean, it looks especially painful, this one. just
1: Yeah, onto his arm, ROH, actually, onto yeah. Moth's arm. Um, they, they're barely tagging like at all. Like those the Rottweilers, they just come in and out. <laughs> oh, I wrote down this other funny line. Gabe goes, "Julius Smokes used to be such a cool guy." <laughs> <laughs> I cracked up with that. I felt so bad. Like, oh, Gabe, you you, uh, uh, you you miss your old buddy Julius, who you he- looked up to.
0: There's a few times on these shows since uh, *Homicide* really went like deep into the heel, where Gabe has tried to act like Julius Smokes has dramatically changed. <laughs> and it's like I don't know if I'm buying that, game. Yeah. Well, he seems like the same guy. It's
1: kind of true with *Homicide* too, other than his promos.
0: Yeah, but but just
1: like he's such a cool, such a cool guy. It reminded me of um, the episode of *Seinfeld* where George liked uh, Elaine's boyfriend Tony. <laughs> Eddie, 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 he he uh, he was making him sandwiches so they could go rock climbing, and he's like, he's such a cool guy. Um, uh, there was a cool spot where Moff German suplexed both Rottweilers at the same time. I definitely enjoyed that. Like, and it wasn't like they were like, like kind of like a sandwich. It was like side by side, like each of them with one arm. I thought that was cool. Um, Smokes distract the ref, so he misses the big tag to Whitmer. So Whitmer attacks Smokes, and then Moff speared him. And um, Nolte was criticizing Hansen for not allowing the blind tag when he allowed the Rottweilers. Man, it, it seems very common already for people to be criticizing Hanson a lot on commentary. Um, when Whitmer gets the hot tag, he explodes um, Loki into Rocky, um, and Homicide then came to ringside. Um, and Loki did his, like, the, the Kobashi chops on Whitmer and Whitmer then exploded him again. He, uh, Loki blocked the, rich cl- the wrist clutch and got the dragon clutch, and Moff speared him. Uh, Romero got the arm bar on Moff, and Whitmer uh, is blocked by Loki, and Moff taps. Uh, I like the hard-hittingness. I liked the ending. I uh, I thought that there was a little bit of time where it kind of just felt like they were just doing stuff. And I thought it was weird that Loki was just a guy. So that's my general feeling, but it was a good match. I thought it was a good match.
0: Yeah, I I thought this was a, like, solidly entertaining match, like a, like a good, I would say good again, like, but it's weird, I think kind of going to your point, the way I would put it is, I think it's one of the first times we've seen in Ring of Honor, like, low-key in a match where he's not, like, shooting for the moon and trying to steal the show, like, no one in this match... I think is trying to really have like match of the night. They're just trying to be a good middle of the road undercard match. And it's kind of weird not seeing like, you know, especially when low key in the first six months of ring of honor, that company was built around the idea of, you know, Gabe would say on commentary low key with one show stealing match after the other. And yeah, it's weird to see low key just being kind of part of the mid card here. And even like he, he's doing the healing here. And I thought it was kind of cool where the crowd they were really excited to see low key when he first came out, you know, he's back in ring of honor and they were just excited to see him. But when he, when he cheated, the crowd did boom, which I thought was cool. Cause a lot of crowds probably wouldn't have, but it is funny. Like there was a weird moment early on where, um, you no know, keys doing a little bit of cheating, like you said, but there's a moment early on where uh, he's wrestling Dan Moff and, or Dan Moff gets in the ring and Loki kind of cowers. Like he lets Moth completely dominate him and he kind of cowers and then tags out. He just like falls to his button, like runs over and tags R- Romero. And again, it's so weird to see like Loki kind of change on a dime because obviously that would be the last thing Loki would have done as a face in ring of honor. He would have never backed down, but, yeah, if you, if you like hard hitting, this is, you know, four guys that hit real hard, and there isn't, like you said, there isn't much of a story. I would say the second half of the match, there is a story where uh, Moth hurts his shoulder on the outside, and they work, over, they work it over. The double German suplex spot he does near the end, where he suplexes one guy per arm, that is really cool, I agree, but it is, I did feel like, not to, you know, be a, too much of a nerd, but like... He, they work over his arm for, like, the second half of the match, and then he suplexes a guy with the arm and only the arm, and I was like, eh. But, yeah, th- this felt kind of like a house show match where, you know, usually in Ring of Honor you used to guys just going – to try and steal the show where wherever they are up and down the card, But this felt kind of like what it was, which was the first half of a double shot. So the B show, and it's a mid card match and you know, no one here is doing everything they can. Like I could very easily imagine if you told these guys, okay, you're in the main event and we're giving you 25 minutes and we want you to just like, Steal the show, or I guess you're not stealing the show if you're in the main event. But like, I think these four could have had a much better match than they gave here, and I don't think they were trying to have that match here.
1: Which is but, fine. Which is fine sometimes. Yeah,
0: yeah it, it's still still a good, uh, you know, a decent match. Like you said, it dragged a little a couple times in spots, but overall, it was a good match. But something you'll forget immediately afterwards. Um, yeah, the, no, the only other thing I guess to say is, uh, I felt bad for BJ Whitmer, where you know he's coming to the ring and Moth is getting cheered, or Moth is slapping hands, and so I wrote uh, when I was I was watching this, I wrote, so I guess they're baby faces now. And then right after I wrote that, a few fans in the crowd start chanting, "Wash your face at BJ Whitmer," and he just flips them off, and I felt Aww. bad when, in that because you know for those who don't for some reason i don't know i have to assume that everyone that is listening to this podcast knows who bj whitmer is but he has some fairly deep acne scars on his face so that is a chant he would get on the indies for time to time but i believe this is one of the first times i've heard someone in ring of ring a ring of honor crowd uh send it towards him but
1: so i am um, at least he at least he has that harley race endorsement
0: yeah that get him to sleep at night um After the match, Alice in Danger returns to the ring and tells the Rottweilers that they did phenomenal tonight. Uh, Danger says if they keep working like that, maybe one day they can join the Prophecy. So they're continuing this idea that Alice in Danger is kind of insane now and she keeps thinking the Prophecy is still alive. Uh, danger starts to call out Moth and Whitmer. She starts to call them losers, but then Moth pie faces danger right into the Rottweilers and homicide gives her the cop killer to a big pop. So that continues, uh, (laughs) ring of honor where the, I wrote ring of honor where the heel group gets a giant face pop for killing a woman. Um, All of the Rottweilers celebrate with Romero standing on danger, Homicide calling her a bitch, and Smokes pantomiming jacking off onto her. Uh, uh, I should note, the crowd loves all of this. Um, And then after this, Key, Romero, and Smokes post on the turnbuckles to cheers like their faces, which seems kind of weird. Well, Homicide goes to the outside, he throws chairs in the ring, and then we cut to intermission, where we get to see danger being attended to by referees, they put a neck brace on her and they carry her out. What looks like on a giant thick wooden plank or maybe a door. I I don't know. Um, yeah, that,
1: it, it was uh, a door. It was a door. It it kind of. I, that's. I'm pretty sure that's what they did for Daniels too. It sort of mirrored the Daniels um, thing from the end of a battle lines are drawn. Did that? Did you notice the uh, the parallels there and the way they shot oh, it? Yeah,
0: no,
1: I think it was intentional. Yeah, now that
0: I think about it, huh, if it's intentional, that's a neat little detail because yeah, it was in that sense, very similar to how they wrote out Daniels.
1: Yeah. And, Um, and and it's, and yeah, and it's when I watched the, uh, the spot, it was like, Man, if it was, I mean, obviously it's bad to do the violence against women angles, no matter what, I think. But if it wasn't for the crowd, you know, cheering it on, it would at least be a little bit less heinous. Because, like, the announcers, for once, actually did treat this as a horrible thing to be sad and upset about. And they were—they acted very concerned about Alice in Danger's well-being for the rest of the show. Which is absolutely not something that they have done for any other attack on any other women. Including Becky Bayless getting pile-driven through a table on the floor by the carnage crew and different things like that uh this is um this is i guess a very very baby step in the right direction from like the (laughs) worst place possible um so they're still in the second worst place possible but at least they're treating it like it's bad now the crowd has not caught up yet (laughs)
0: Yeah, it feels like the announcer's stance on violence against women is solely dependent on if they're aligned with a face or a heel. Like, if they're aligned with a heel, it's perfectly fine for a man to beat the living crap out of a woman. If they're aligned with a face, then it's the worst thing ever. So, it, it, they don't really have a strict moral stance But on but it, it but, but, dang, like. but danger's a heel. I, I, yeah, I guess, actually. Oh, you see, that's another weird thing, which is she's she, a heel, but the Rottweilers took her out, and they're heels. Like... And then they post like it was like a baby face move and they get huge cheers. Like it's just confusing. I, I don't know, Matt. Um, I, I will read from this live report that was in PWInsider.com from the, at this time. Uh, a guy named Jim Fields wrote in a live report and I just thought I he gave a little bit of live color to the segment. He wrote – they spend a majority of intermission getting Alice in Danger out of the ring. They ended up stretching her out on an eight foot wood table. Strange that since they were planning the angle that they didn't have a stretcher available, but I'll just interject on Jim Fields' notes, which is maybe again going to your point, Matt, that maybe they planned the symbolism. Anyway, Jim Fields continues, but I guess in some way it made it seem more real. This is the part, Matt, I want I why I'm reading this. Jim Fields writes, however, with both Ricky Steamboat and Baron Von Raschke signing autographs, the fans could have cared less. And I just, the <laughs> image in my mind of, like, them trying to do this serious stretcher angle, and then everyone just focused on, like, Ricky Steamboat signing autographs in, like, the building at the same time. Like, that, Yeah, that that's, makes me feel bad. that's not great planning. <laughs> and, um. Jim Fields also adds, about Steamboat 2, the crowd was, as you'd expect, really into him. He also took the time to make sure to sign for everyone who wanted him to, even signing a huge stack of photos that one fan brought. And I've never been an autograph person, but I just wanted to use this as a chance to say to people, folks, don't be that guy. If you're getting an autograph signed somewhere, don't be the guy that brings like 20 things to get signed. Like. From friends that have, who enjoy getting autographs, no one likes being behind the guy in line that is has like a stack of things that they will probably sell on eBay. You know, I mean, it's nice that Steamboat signed them all, but just bring one or two things. Don't bring twenty different things for Steamboat to sign.
1: That is your public service announcement for today. Also, also wash your hands. Yes,
0: I was going to say the most important thing we need right now is is advice to autograph seekers because obviously that's something that's going to be happening quite a bit for the next few months. There's lots of public gatherings where people are.
1: No, though the only, you know, in the New York City, which is where I live, which is like the epicenter of the virus right now, the only public gatherings that are allowed right now are autograph signings and wrestler conventions. I don't know why it's strange. <laughs>
0: Vincent McMahon just is insisting he's 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 um really uh I was going to say greasing the hand or I, for a second I wanted to say greasing the pocket but Matt, you
1: can grease the hand as long as you wash it immediately afterward.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm going to be out Purell pretty soon, so I might be down to grease soon, Matt. Um But going on to something that I could not think of a transition from greased hands to (laughs) Chad Collier defeated Danny Daniels in 8 minutes, 28 seconds when he made him submit to the Texas Cloverleaf. I am going to find it a struggle to say much about this match. I thought this was the most average of the average. It didn't really have a story. It wasn't bad. It wasn't good. I felt it just time. I will say Chad Collier is a guy who I think is a little underrated, who I would have liked to have been seeing him work full time in Ring of Honor at this period. And this was kind of like a bad match for him because even though he did kind of shut off his versatility because he did more of a standard kind of indie match where it wasn't as much focused on his mat work and submissions that he then breaks out the really nice tope. There was also a couple, I would think, kind of rarer for him botches where he did kind of a pretty ugly leg lariat that the announcers called out. And then he did a, uh, a hurricane Rana where he did not jump high enough for it. And it basically turned into more of a, a hurricane Rana at the armpits. And the
1: the crowd chanted, that's okay. That's okay. So they're a nice,
0: they're a nice crowd. Yeah, that was very hard. And that was one of the early instances where I think we've talked about this before, where I feel like crowds have changed and you've rightfully pointed out that maybe not, Every crowd, depending on the region, is is forgiving in twenty twenty. But I feel like this was around two thousand three, two thousand four was when I first started hearing like any crowd started to do stuff like the "That's okay" chant.
1: Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. This was this was an early time. Also, the where in the one of the show a few shows ago in Chicago where the guy chanted like after a racist chant, they were like, "You are racist." So we're getting some more woke crowds um, already in this era, but slightly, slightly more woke.
0: I, and I don't know if that's just. A good sign of society, or if that was maybe the ECW influence on fans starting to finally wear off after a few years of them being out. But definitely, like if this if this same spot happened a few years earlier, you would have got nothing. You would have got no. That's okay. You would have right.
1: You also, no. but f- on the other hand, you did get major homicide chance during the homicide match. So,
0: and, and the crowd absolutely eating up like a woman getting. Totally destroyed by a group of men. Oh, yeah, that. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, they had had one good moment in the midst of a maybe troubling performance from the crowd. Uh, Mixed review for the crowd tonight. Um, Yeah, Matt, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on an eight-minute Chad Collier-Danny Daniels match?
1: Actually, uh, this is another match that I like more than you. I expected nothing from this. I expected it to maybe be four minutes, but they tried. They actually gave me eight minutes. Eight minutes is enough to do a thing, and I didn't think it was like a good match because I don't think it could be, but I thought it was a solid match for the time they had, You know, especially given Collier's botches. Um, Daniels worked pretty hard, and they kept mentioning that uh Daniels was doing better in the wrestling match than he had been in those brawls that he had been in or that one brawl I guess with the Carnage Crew. <laughs> um but and I agree with that. He did look a lot better here. Um you know, there's not really too much to say. I really enjoy Collier. Um I was it was you know, it's a shame that he made those botches. But you know, I thought it was I thought it was decent. I thought, you know, just they were working hard. Um and they did what they could in that amount of time. So, you know, I would give this match a solid like two and a quarter, two and a half stars, you know, which is, you know, for that match of that length is not bad. I expected, like, it to, you know, not even get to, like, the two-star level because it just wouldn't be long enough. Like, a lot of times these matches that are unhyped after intermission with guys that are not, aren't pushed don't get even this much time. And so I thought it was nice that they gave him this much time, and it was okay.
0: Yeah, I, I do agree about the time, like, because a lot of these matches, it feels like in the year or two before this, this would be the slot on the, on the card where they would give a guy like four minutes. Even though it seems like not that much, for some reason I find that like the difference between four minutes and eight minutes is like all the difference in the world. Oh, yeah. For wrestling.
1: It's huge. Like I would say once you get seven minutes, you could have an actual match. Uh, not like a classic or anything but a match. Whereas if you do four minutes, unless you're like like doing like an incredible mega sprint that's just uh, you know action-packed, you're not really going to have like a match
0: that can really be rated much. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I believe we've talked in the past about how, you know, it's hard to really get a good handle on a wrestler. If you give, if you're trying to scout them and you're giving them four minutes, but with eight here, I think, yeah, you do get enough to at least, you know, learn some things about the guy you just booked for a show. But that brings us to our next match, which is Jimmy Jacobs, John Walters and Matt Stryker with Ricky Steamboat in their corner, defeating generation next of Austin Aries, Jack Evans and Roderick Strong in 16 minutes. 47 seconds when Walters made Evans tap to some kind of weird submission. I can't describe. Um, Matt, before I'll just say, before I give it to you before the match starts, John Walters gets on the mic in the ring. And he says, if there's one thing he, Matt striker and Jimmy Jacobs understand it's that there's power in numbers, which it's just such a John Walters just comes off as such a goober. I'm sorry. Um, it's
1: weird. That, it's weird how often they decide to give him mic time, isn't it? I guess. Yeah. I guess it says a lot about how bad Stryker and maybe even Jacobs at the time was on the mic. Or maybe Jacobs' character just didn't talk. Maybe that was. Yeah, Mario. he
0: would have to just say huss, which might have been an improvement on Walters, but. Um Walters introduces Ricky Steamboat as their insurance policy against Generation Next. Steamboat gets into a standoff with Generation Next for a while, but he eventually drops down to ringside, but not before Matt the crowd chants arm drag, which I thought was funny. And then Steamboat, um, he serves Jack Evans. Jack Evans, you know, does the breakdown stuff, and then Steamboat decides he's going to show off his dancing, which. I, I can't do this justice. Basically, um, Ricky Steamboat's idea of breakdancing is to shrug his shoulders up and down. And that got a big pop from the crowd. Um, Matt, what did you think, though, about the match? And if you want, what did you think about um, Ricky Steamboat's shoulder shrugging?
1: Um, the shoulder shrugging, I um, I thought was five stars. <laughs> Best shoulder shrugging I've ever seen. Um, no, I actually... Um I love this match um, I'm not saying it was a great match but I thought Generation Next looked so good here um, especially when they were working over Jacobs um, you know Evans you've mentioned before how that guy is just like always on and just like he works the crowd at every moment um, and I thought he, this was really true here. like and his wrestling looked really good. Like he was doing so, like I will say this. at uh, the beginning, he did some arm drags on Jacobs and multi Milt, called them beautiful arm drags. They were not beautiful arm drags. <laughs> and Jacobs did arm drags right after that were much better. But for the rest of it, I thought it was really good. like I, I thought that um, you know, they were working over Jacobs mostly. and you know, Evans was doing the mat work. Ares did one of like the most brutal inverted atomic drops. I've ever seen in my life on Jacobs um, to the point where Nolte called it a spine buster but it was an atomic drop Um, (laughs) but Evans did like a drop saw landed on his feet followed up by a corkscrew splash off the mat and then like worked the crowd the whole time uh, Strong did a great top rope elbow onto Jacobs. He did a press slamming Jacobs into the turnbuckle, like, really hard. They did this triple-team double stomp on Jacobs, which where Evan came, Evans came off the top onto Jacobs' midsection while Aries and Strong were holding him up. Um, Strong did, like, this brutal running knee to Jimmy's back, and which sent him crashing into the buckle. I just the, the, the period where they were working over Jacobs was just... They were just so impressive. Like They were just really coming together, in my opinion. Um, Jacobs finally press-slammed Evan off the top onto Aries and Strong and did a double hot tag to Stryker and Walters. And then they were doing double-team moves, Stryker and Walters were, including an electric tr- chair lung blower, which got a really big pop. Um, Aries did the 450 on Stryker, but Jacobs hit him with a senton to break it up. That's when Shelly interfered so Steamboat attacked him. Evans missed the 630 on Walters and Walters did that crazy submission for the tap out. I thought basically I um I thought that um, the early part of the match where they were with Generation Next was working over Jacobs was excellent. Like they just looked really good. And then when they finally did the hot tag, it was so fast paced that I thought that was very good. Um some negatives I guess were um Steamboat like I, he kept distracting the ref, helping Generation Next, which made him seem a little bit dumb. Um, but I don't know. I just thought Generation Next looked so good here, and I was very impressed with them.
0: Yeah, um, something I, I've really found on rewatching these shows, something I've been talking about, I think, on some of these episodes, is that Generation Next. A lot of these, t- I keep saying with these tags, like, they're not as good as I remember. And this was the first tag where I was like, this is as good, if not better, than I remember. I, like, I really, really like this match. I, I agree with you. Like, I wouldn't quite put, a, like, great. But this is, like, I if I had to give it a star rating, like, three and three quarter or something. Something like that. The way I would describe the quality of this match was... It's not the kind of thing like you'll go, oh, I'm going to remember this match forever. But if you bought like a compilation tape of Generation Next or Ring of Honor in 2004 and this match was on the tape, you'd watch and go, oh, like I, never re- I didn't remember this match. I'm really glad this was on the tape. Like that's a cool little hidden gem. Yeah.
1: Def- the definition I, of a hidden gem is this match. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and I feel like. Generation X, like you said, this match, until the end where they lose, it's kind of uh, just a showcase for Generation X. Like, it it really, uh, some of these other matches they were in, it felt like they weren't as in control as a new stable should be. And this match, it's all about, you know, everyone on that team looks great. They have those cool triple teams you talked about. I think this is one of the first really, really good Roderick Strong performances where he just looks like a monster, like you said, just almost lawn darting um, Jacobs into the corner and just hitting hard. And like all three guys look really good. They almost had a bit of like a, a Kai and tai dojo kind of feel of just like this heel group with like really cool triple teams. And they're just all really fast paced, exciting guys. So even though they're the heels, you're just like, wow, these guys are just so cool. And, um, yeah, just a really, really fun kind of showcase. Uh, my flaw in this match would be, I feel like going to the end, like you said, where Generation Next dominates, and then at the end, there's finally the hot tag, and uh, Walters and Stryker have kind of a surprisingly entertaining um, kind of hot tag sequence, but the match ends very shortly after that. I could have actually stood to see if, if they could have kept it going at that pace and that entertainment level for a couple more minutes. I could have... stood to see this match go even longer and then at the very end it felt like there was almost too much going on for the cameras to keep track of because you have like Alex Shelley who was at ringside getting into it with Steamboat and Steamboat taking him out and at the same time the finish of the match is happening where uh Jack Evans is going for the 630 and the camera I don't know if something went wrong or the camera angle was just bad but like I think John Walters rolled out of the way, but the camera angle is in so tight and the cut is so quick to it. You don't see really John Walters roll out of the way. And it just looks like Jack Evans crashes and burns on a six thirty, and Walters immediately puts him in the submission, which is like a, a weird ending. But I think he did roll all the way. I just cr- couldn't really tell. Well, and again, there's just so much going on in that last 30 seconds or a minute. I, I feel like it, it just got a little too chaotic. Um, there was also one botch in this match where um, it looked like it could have been really scary where Austin Aries takes a Matt Striker arm drag, speaking of arm drags, and he doesn't ro- – I don't know if he rotates enough or one of the guys slipped or something, but Aries almost lands right on his head. Like he doesn't rotate enough on an arm drag, which looked scary. Um, one other thing is, uh, Matt, I don't know what you think about Mark Nolte's commentary, but this show he kind of graded on me. <laughs> I felt like, um when we on the first show, Martin Nolte went on, I felt like, you know what? He's not great, but he's not terrible either. And I felt like, you know, he's he's, you know, better than some of the commentators we've heard in early Ring of Honor. But I feel like, he hasn't progressed. Like if anything, he's regressed a little, I find him like he's a little bit worse now than he was when he started. I think he, he, um, he makes a mistake frequently on these shows where he will point out things that the announcer shouldn't be pointing out. Like there will be flaws in, in the matches and he'll point them out and like things that the, that the announcer shouldn't call attention to like, and and he'll make rookie mistakes too. Like in this match, he says something like, um, Get, he's like, you know, not Gabe, obviously Gabe's not using, he's Jimmy Bauer on this, but he's like, Jimmy, you know, it's weird that, don't you find it weird that Alex Shelley didn't come out to second generation next? And Gabe has to point out like, no, he's at ringside right now. Like we can see him. And and he is. <laughs> and it's like little things like that, where he was making those mistakes in the first couple of shows. And I thought, well, he's still learning the product, but he hasn't really slowed. Like he still makes a couple of those gaffes. It seems like every show Again, he's not terrible, but I just feel like he's not getting better.
1: I think he adds certain things. Like, I think when he, like, talking about strategy, like, I think he can sometimes do a good job with that. Like, I don't know if you agree, like, like, especially for, like, a big main event match where he, like, will talk about, like, the different strengths and weaknesses and the different possible strategies. Like, I thought he added stuff to those Joe Punk matches where he's talking about, like, the Ropa Dope and things like that, and then mentioning, oh, maybe they're doing the same strategy here with, um you know, the Briscoes and the main event. Like, I like that stuff i do agree that he points out wrestler mistakes too often i don't don't know what like you know that was another thing that like gorilla monsoon and jesse ventura used to do also which you know and i love them but like it's a i I don't know i don't get the the uh, point of that like why they're like criticizing wrestlers like uh, that's one thing that jim ross like at his best like definitely never did um you know you know, and the great Michael Cole never does that. No, he's am kidding. Um, although Michael Cole, you know, he's definitely been good in his way sometimes. Um, but no, seriously, like I, I don't understand the uh, desire to do that. I guess there's just a desire to sound like a great strategist. So you, um, so you point out good strategy and when it's not being done. But I don't know if Nolte's the guy to be doing that. Punk would do it too think, sometimes.
0: Yeah, I think so, uh, one some announcers, like I, I can't get into their heads and read their motivations but I know some people accuse like I know Dave Meltzer in the past has talked about Gorilla Monsoon would complain about certain things like like this wrestler didn't hook the leg or something. And and Dave Meltzer, I remember reading him right. Like a long time ago, him, he resented gorilla monsoon doing that. Cause some of the things he would complain about, he would be like, they're not doing those things because Vince McMahon told all the wrestlers not to do certain things. And like gorilla monsoon knows that. So he's just saying that, you know, in Dave's mind, that meant monsoon is just saying that basically to, you know, to look smart, but really you're kind of unfairly making the wrestlers look bad when knowing they have no control over whatever flaw you're pointing out, but I think it's more just in some guys' cases, like maybe nullties, it's also just about you're trying to call wrestling as, is, as if it's a shoot, and you can't because wrestling, you're supposed to call the action, but it's a weird thing where you're also – you' you're 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 a promoter basically too. you know you're trying to hype these guys up and hype the matches up and hide flaws and explain away mistakes and, and tell policies. and tell and tell and tell a story, right like you're yeah. trying to
1: get you're trying to get characters from point A to point b
0: like you you're supposed you're you're trying to put a narrative on top of the match you know and in in regular sports or news we would say that's bad we would say you're supposed to just you know report what you see and don't try and superimpose like your own preconceived notions where pro wrestling announces the exact opposite you very much want to do that when you can and i think like you said jim ross at his prime he was great at that about he would clearly have like a story in his head going into a match and everything would like that he watched he'd find a way to tie it back into that point or story that he went in going like this is what the match is about exactly but uh yeah um i guess just to sum up again really good match and also i I just want to point out um jimmy jacobs is such a good like face in peril, he is so over with the hus gimmick. And just because he's so small and he's willing to take an absolute beating, like, you know, he's a good face in peril where I felt kind of bad for him at a couple times in this match. Some of the offense he's taking and it's it, it, just to show you the difference, like in he could make like the match is good when Matt strikers not the face in peril, but when he tags out and then Jimmy Jacobs becomes the face in peril, like shortly afterwards, that's when I found like the match went up like a whole nother gear. And it's just, you know, it's just two guys both taking a beatings, but there's just something about small, little, lovable Jamie Jacobs getting the crap beat out of him that just makes the match better.
1: It's surprising to me that Gabe went so all in with Shelley, but Jacobs still only appears like kind of sporadically. Um, you know, that will change obviously in the not too distant future, but Gabe took a little while to get Jacobs like as a full time member of the roster.
0: You get the feeling with the commentary that he didn't love the Hus gimmick. Like all the times he would joke with Nolte like the real – what do you think, Bruiser Brody? He kept bringing that up over and over again in so many shows. Like it's – I, I kind of – you know, maybe I'm running too much into this but I kind of get the feeling that it's one of those things where Gabe recognized it was over but he probably was not a huge fan of that gimmick himself.
1: Makes sense. I, I mean it, once he started pushing it, Jacobs for real, he,
0: he kind of got rid of the Hus gimmick too. Yeah, and I mean it is a one-note comedy gimmick, but it was always – pretty much on every one of these shows, it's really over. And in fact, like it's kind of it's, – it's over enough to the point where after this match is over and the faces are celebrating with Steamboat, Ricky – like the whole end little thing of this segment is Ricky like doing huss hands with Jimmy. like he, he's That's the right, yeah. At the
1: end. Everyone else loved
0: it. Gabe didn't really like it so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that brings us to the semi-main event the Ring of Honor world title match, the end of this feud for now. Uh, Samoa Joe successfully defended the title when he defeated Homicide, who had Julius Smokes and Loki and Rocky Romero at ringside initially, at least. He wins, Joe wins in 24 minutes, one second, when he made Homicide pass out in the rear naked choke. Um, This is a different, I thought this was kind of a different match for these two. I thought it was interesting the way they took it. Uh, And, where I said the Shelly and Williams match, I liked a little less because I just saw their last match. I think I liked this match a little more because I knew the context of all their other matches. Cause this one's a little different in the sense that it feel, like, feels like this match, even though you would think, okay, the whole step going into this match is homicide. They have said, you know, these two have wrestled so much that Gabe's tells us on commentary, this is homicide's last chance against Joe that if homicide loses this, he doesn't get another title shot as long as Joe is champion. And so you think, okay, it's going to be like this epic, epic, like, you know, they're going to try and top everything they've done before. And really, I found, other than like the final minute, which we can get into, this was like surprisingly restrained. Like, it's way more about Homicide just being like a really old school heel that is about like trying to top everything they've ever done. The match kind of falls into this really, I would say, like satisfying groove where most of the matches... Joe really dominates homicide for a minute or two where you really feel like Joe's clearly better than this guy now. And then homicide does some kind of cheating, like an eye gouge or something to get the advantage. Homicide controls a little bit and then Joe fights back and it kind of goes that way for most of the match. And then in the final minute, that's where it's a really exciting final minute, but it's kind of a weird final minute because the rest of the match doesn't feel like they're, like I said, like they're trying to top everything else. But in that final minute of the match, I believe Homicide becomes the first person that ever gets to kick out of the muscle buster. And then right after that, Joe hits him with the island driver, which is another one of his finishers, which Homicide gets to kick out of. And then right after that, Joe then kicks him a few times in the head and chokes him out for the win. And it it felt weird because I realized the point is probably, you know, Homicide's one of our top stars. We've got to keep him strong. So let's let him basically survive things that no one else survived. But at the same time, it felt like The last move of the match was basically like a WrestleMania main event end, and the rest of the match didn't feel like the most epic end ever. It felt just like a good match between two guys that I think are probably incapable of having a bad match against each other. But uh, what did you think about it, Matt?
1: I'd say this was my favorite match between the two of them since the first uh, do-or-die match, which we gave – you know, we ranked highly in our 2003 match of the year. It wasn't as good as that in terms of drama, but I thought it was definitely better than their last two matches. Um, I thought it was a great match. I would go in the four and a quarter star range, probably, honestly. Um, I really liked, you know, Homicide's healing. Uh, I liked, like, there was a spot where he spit on his hands and then raked Joe's back, because I have infection on the brain also.
0: Um, (laughs) Oh god, that must have been a nightmare.
1: Yeah, um, one of the early, um, spots that was cool, like, you know, they very quickly got rid of the, uh the uh, Rottweilers to make it like a mono mono thing, right? Loki, Rocky, and Julius Smokes all, like, tripped and just Joe at one point. So, uh, the referee just immediately got rid of all of them. So they had this, like, one-on-one match. Um, yeah, and then, you know, there's a lot of Homicide doing eye pokes and stuff, so, so Joe would be, like, selling his eye. Um, at some points, Nolte was good here, like, mentioning that Homicide's best bet is to keep Joe in the ring, but then at other points, he went too far with it. He said that, if you had to choose between Joe and Homicide, which one would be more comfortable in a street fight? He said it would be <laughs> Joe, and he's like, you know, I just think, you know, if you look at them both of their matches, you know, Joe just does more of those kinds of matches, and I'm just like, okay, we have watched every ROH match um, so far on the main shows. How many of Homicide's matches were brawls? A
0: lot, <laughs> like, like the a only, lot, a lot. <laughs> one of like the first segments in Ring of Honor history. It, uh, for uh that introduced homicide was him standing in a new york street talking about how he's from the street and like you know like he is literally like his gimmick early on it was like i'm a street fighter <laughs> yeah and mark's and you can tell gabe's trying to fight against it but being polite like yeah yeah, yeah exactly but, he's like he's like i don't know mark that's kind of a toss-up
1: um he literally says that um meanwhile uh in in his first year in roh Homicide stabbed two people in the head. Um, HC uh, Loke and Steve Carino. Um, he's had barbed wire matches. He's had crazy ladder brawls. He beat Samoa Joe once by choking him out with a noose. Like it's just, um, yeah. Um, he yeah. one of one of his favorite tools is a fork.
0: Like <laughs> it, it just goes back to like it's one of those things that it's still kind of. I don't think Mark. You know, I wouldn't know for sure. I don't think he really did all his research like i don't think he yeah.
1: watched those shows you know But like the guy's <laughs> name is homicide <laughs> yeah, don't you don't think have to th- th- you don't have to do much research to figure out what his gimmick is
0: he's trying to be like yeah when you put it that way it's insane like yeah i think homicide's the one that's more of the pure wrestler here you know uh, it's like <laughs> what? homicide what yeah. his name
1: <laughs> <laughs> um But, like, yeah, if anything, it's – like, the thing that usually surprises people about Homicide is how much wrestling he does. Usually the default assumption is that he's a street fight guy. So, like, I don't know, Mark. Um, But I I thought the match was really good. I I thought – you know, um, I liked Homicide, you know, taunting the crowd and then Joe hitting the enziguri from the floor after Homicide, like, pretends that he was going to do the tope. He does that a few times where he teases the tope and then, like – and Joe always will, like, kind of um, make him pay for fucking around with it. Um, but, yeah, at one point, uh, Homicide blocked the ole-ole click with an Inzagiri, then tried to do his own ole-ole kick, ole but Joe, like, overhead threw him on the floor. And I loved Homicide's cell here, where he, like, sits up and, like, kind of, like, jumps around the floor like he's hurting so much.
0: Um, He punches the railing, then butt-scoots like he's a dog on a carpet, (laughs) and then, like, runs in a circle on the floor like he's the Three Stooges or Homer Simpson. Yes. like an amazing (laughs) sequence. He literally does that. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But it would be great if he did. (laughs) That would be be five stars. I would give this five stars if he did that.
1: Yeah. But at this point, Joe is either really tired or selling being really tired, because there are a couple of moments where he's just, like, stopping for a while and checking his eyes. I think it's selling and then it's a unique kind of selling because it does seem real um, but uh, joe is like so before he had those big moves joe was like avoiding a lot of homicides comeback moves and hitting him with his own big moves the big snap power uh, power slam a tiger driver a um like a a um, cobra clutch suplex like all kinds of cool stuff um homicide even does like a half pile driver uh, but he because he, he couldn't get joe up but he, uh, he got two. Um, at this point, you're right. Gabe goes into, like, WrestleMania mode. Um, Homicide does his lariats. Um, and Joe keeps... Does his, like, his fighting spirit scream until Homicide finally knocks him down. Um, but then Joe blocks another. Does the slap. The Cobra Cut suplex, like I said. Um, the Muscle Buster gets two. The Island Driver gets two. Um... I actually thought it was cool. Like, I thought, because ROH doesn't do this a lot, at least at this point, the spamming finishers and kickouts, right? You can't... I can't really think of too many matches where they really did that in ROH so far. Can you?
0: No. And I thought it was a great, like, exciting final I just thought it was a little... Like It it just felt like the rest of the match kind of surprised me at how – and I agree with you, by the way, what you said at the start, which was this is is the best match I think these two have had since do or die. And I would probably put my rating for it at four stars, like right below your four and a quarter. Mm -hmm. But I did think it was interesting where the rest of the match felt like kind of restrained in a way. And then the last minute is kind of like what you would expect for a final match where they're just doing – yeah, giant finishers. You felt it was a little bit incongruent.
1: Yeah, um, but um, I what I liked is that I think like the fact they don't do it very often, and they thought Homicide deserved it. Homicide deserves yeah. to get to kick all these big moves, and I think it's true. I think after everything, and you obviously you still need to keep them strong. And he's still going to be feuding with Joe, just not having singles matches. I think that it's good. Like I, I, I thought, like I probably would have booked it the same way, honestly. Maybe not exactly the same, but having Homicide kick out of the big moves. I think that's like a, a fitting end to this feud. And Joe finally just has to go psycho on him and choke him out, and he does, and then he won't release the uh, the hold, and that's where we get our our ending sequence.
0: Yeah, I, I just have a couple more notes I want to get to uh, from the match. Uh, there was a couple other really cool moments. I thought uh, Homicide did this great flying knee to the back of Joe's head that looked good. I also thought, like you mentioned, Joe did the tiger driver. I thought those were like the kind of cool moments that these two always kind of break out where um, they always change up little things. Like Joe does the power bomb, and normally when the guy kicks out, he turns into the STF. But here Homicide kicked out like and pushed himself away too far from joe i don't know if that was intentional or not but then joe immediately does the tiger driver which i don't know he rarely breaks that out at least here in ring of honor at this time and it's just stuff like that that was really cool and again i think these two aren't capable of having a bad match against each other nothing other than do or die what i think is really like a classic match but they're all either very good or, or great on their own um Matt, before we get to the end segment, though, I just wanted to ask you if you noticed this. um, One more. I don't want to pick on the guy, but I like this Mark Nolte bit of commentary. Mark Nolte, talking about this feud, he said, and I quote, Nothing breeds hatred more than former respect. Matt (laughs) and thought about this for like five minutes and tried to make... I I, I kind of think, is that true? Is there any way that could be true? I really don't think that nothing <laughs> that nothing breeds hatred more than former respect no you know like the thing is Hitler used to really respect the Jews. <laughs> that's why he hated them so much. And he yeah. respected them so much at first. Yeah. Um, no,
1: I uh, no, that's ridiculous. But it is it is a very like a wrestling thing to say. You know what I mean? You know they were bitter friends, but now they're stiffer enemies. Um, <laughs> I will say this about the match. One thing I want to say. I even fell for the Muscle Buster as the near fall. I thought that was the finish. Then I thought the Island Driver was the finish. So even like fifteen and a half years later. I bought into these near falls. So I think those are good near falls.
0: And like, like you, like I I had this weird feeling where I was watching those near falls, like, just like you, I forgot them where I was like, when I was watching, even though I felt what I was thinking before, like you said, that's a bit incongruous. That's a great way of putting the words on what I was saying way more eloquently than me. But, uh, when I was watching, at the same time, when I was watching those moves. I was also kind of happy because I was like, good for homicide that they're giving him this much. Cause I did feel like he deserves, he deserves to be more than just another scalp for Joe. So I did really I, like you. I was glad that they gave him all of that to try and differentiate. Like, yes, he loses just like all the rest, but he, he took more than anyone else. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, and also I mentioned earlier, uh, That uh, homicide was escorted to the ring by the Rottweilers. I should note that they all get sent to the back very early on. So for the most part, this is a straight-up wrestling match. Um, After the match, Joe won't release the choke, like Matt said. And the ref has to call staff in the back to try and get them to pull pry Joel off. He won't release. Uh, The Rottweilers then run back in. They stomp Joe. They get him to release by stomping on him. Smokes in particular just goes insane and he chokes Joe himself, which I thought was funny. Uh, Low-key puts a choke of his own on Joe. Nulty wonders where is anyone to help Joe, which is he's continuing to do that thing I complained about earlier where he's asking a question a commentator probably shouldn't be asking. Although this time Gabe actually bails him out. He says, oh, I think most of the wrestlers are already driving to Chicago for the show tomorrow night. So Gabe kind of gives a good reason why no one would be bailing out the face. Um, and he also says, oh, and the Briscoes and the Saints are preparing for their main event. Homicide then gets on the mic. And he says, well, this might be the last match between him and Joe. It's not the end between Joe and the Rottweilers. Uh, Rocky Romero, Key, and Homicide all spit on the Ring of Honor world title and then toss it on Joe's body. And then Gabe says in a line, Matt, I know you were intrigued by. Gabe says, they have raped the belt of its dignity multiple times. Gabe really liked this line. Oh, okay. and,
1: and the way he says it, they're raping the belt of its dignity.
0: <laughs> They're just um,
1: ready, like really highlights the word rape. He's like they're just, they're raping the belt of its dignity. Gabe had
0: quite a night on commentary tonight. I, I thought this was a solid beatdown to keep the feud going, but the only thing I didn't like about it was Joel holding on the choke because I felt like if it, it made sense because the feud, you know, Homicide done some pretty horrible things to Joe before this, like throw a fireball at him. But at the same time, I think on this night. Like it kind of makes the Rottweilers look justifiable for beating Joe down afterwards because like he wasn't going to release that choke. They really made a point to show you like, no, he's going to murder homicide if these heels don't save their friend's life, which it's kind of a little bit of a weird tonal shift. I think I just would have let Joe let go of the choke and then have the beat down. But I mean, other than that, I thought this was a good, solid segment to keep everything going.
1: Yeah, I agree. It was
0: it was good. I mean, it maybe was a little too similar
1: from of the week to the week before, Um, but you know, the spitting on the belt and the you know the uh, the taking its dignity (laughs) um,
0: was I guess added another layer to it. And that brings us finally to the Ring of Honor tag team title best two out of three falls main event. The Second City Saints of CM Punk and Colt Cabana successfully defend the titles when they beat the Briscoes, Jay and Mark, two falls to one in 37 minutes, 29 seconds. Uh, The first fall was Jay Briscoe pinned CM Punk in 20 minutes, 12 seconds after he hit the J Driller. The second fall was Colt Cabana pinned uh, Jay Briscoe in twenty six forty three with his weird new leg trappy roll-up that he had been starting to unveil as a new finisher around this time. And the final fall was CM Punk pinning Mark Briscoe in 37-29 after he hit the Pepsi Plunge. Um, Matt, just like the last match, this is the feud ender, the last match we're going to see between these, te- these groups or teams for a long while or in the case of this match I don't think they ever wrestled again uh, what do you think about this as a way to end the show and to end the feud
1: alright well so this match was a long match right almost 40 minutes and CM Punk in particular has a lot of experience at this point with long matches right he, he had done like 90 minute matches in IWA he 60 minute matches a bunch of times including recently in ROH so he's pretty seasoned but I don't know how many like long matches the Briscoes have done Um, At this point, and it felt like the first fall really telegraphed that they were going long. In fact, given how slow it was at times, I thought they they were going even longer. Um, obviously, I I knew how much time was left on the DVD, but I, I would have thought that. Um, and, um... I don't I feel like if like, this was a couple years later and everyone was more seasoned they would have done something a little bit less obvious in the first fall in terms of it going long cuz they really really just took their time, did a lot of stalling, you know, chain wrestling and stare downs and you know, not not a lot of stuff. It really got going about 10 minutes in when um when H- Punk started beating down um beating down Mark in the corner um At one point, even Gabe suggested that Punk was doing the slow it down strategy because he had used it against Joe, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so that um, you know, it was it was very noticeable. Um, I did like some of the stuff in the first fall, like the Saints kind of teasing that they might still be heelish, but really not doing heelish stuff at all. Like for example, um, Punk had uh, marking the abdominal stretch, and he was like reaching back to Colt, and you almost thought they were going to do the thing where they grab the hand for the extra leverage. And in fact, even a guy in the crowd yelled, yeah, "Use the leverage!" <laughs> but instead, but instead, Punk just tagged in cult. and then they did a double abdominal stretch, which in wrestling logic is actually less illegal than just the holding the guy's hand. Um, but um, at one point, Punk does this move on Mark, and I guess it's sort of like an Indian stretch turned over. But uh, but Mark Nolte calls it a reverse double toe hold in a surfboard, and I was like, man, I've been watching wrestling like kind of obsessively for like thirty years. And there are still so many names of holds I do not know. Um, would you have looked at that and said that was a reverse double-toe
0: hold? No, and, and I, I almost feel like like when he was saying I was like, you know what, that makes sense, and I never in a million years would have... I, I feel like he was figuring that out as he watched it. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, because I thought like, oh, Indian Death, like it. Yeah, there's a lot of wrestling
1: hold, hold moves that I just don't know the names of. Um, but, um, you know, once... Um, once Punk starts beating up on Mark, then they start doing some um, some more like interesting stuff. Jay starts helping turn the tide, and Mark dives onto Punk, and then the Briscoes sort of heal. They they, they work over Punk in the corner. Um, you know, Jay is like taunting the crowd. He's like taunting Cabana, um, and I think the Briscoes on offense here was more exciting than the Saints on offense. They rip off the corner pad and they throw it at Colt. Um, you know, Jay is just like beating the crap out of out of Punk's head, like from the floor. Uh, at one point, they do a monkey flip on Punk, but Punk lands on his feet and he uh, tags Colt. Then they do this like double team tag team hold. Jay breaks it up and kind of out of nowhere hits the Jay Driller and pins Punk. Um, so the Briscoes are up one to nothing. And from that point, Jay like baseball slides Punk out of the ring, and Punk is knocked out for the entire second fall, which I thought was a nice touch, honestly. But it meant that the second fall was a handicap match. So uh, Mark and Jay are double teaming, but um, uh, Cult, right? Uh, Jay accidentally clotheslines Mark to the floor, um, but they continue to work over over a Cabana for a while. Um, they do a lot of double team moves. They hit a big double boot. They go for the like you know that demolition style knee where it's it's over JOJ shoulder and Mark comes off with the knee. But it's actually a really interesting reversal. Cult like holds jay's head and like pulls it in the way of mark's knee which i've never seen that before and that's what allows the cult to get jay in that weird roll up for three so not a super long second fall i find that second falls often are the short fall um i don't know why that is it's just it's like a formula thing to do um so then they get into the third fall and pretty quickly um you know they, they don't the briscoes don't really honor the 15 second rest period um, they uh, they do the springboard doomsday device and that's when Punk, as you might have predicted, finally pops in to save Colt, and then it's back to a tag team match. Um, it's funny, right after all that big spot, Jay decides to put Colt in a chinlock, which I was surprised by, but it worked. The crowd got really into it, and and egg Colt on. Uh, Colt almost got the hot tag, but Mark knocked Punk off the uh, apron, so Colt hit a crossbody on both Briscoes and and, and Enzigarried Mark. And then tagged in Punk. And that's when it gets kind of fast-paced, right? Punk does a DDT-Russian leg sweep combo. Cabana does a frog splash. And Punk gets two on that. Nolte ping-pongs between Punk and Cabana's forearms. Mark backdrops Punk over the top onto Cabana and Jay. And then Mark goes to the top. And Gabe goes, Mark is crazy. There's no telling what he'll do. So he does the shooting star press he does every time he's in that situation. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Um so then Cabana hits an acai moonsault onto everyone and then they do a very classic ROH tag team spot where Mark ducks the Shining Wizard and uh, Enziguri's Punk and then Cabana lariats Mark then Jay Yakuza kicks Cabana then Punk boots Jay and so that, so it gives it a moment for everyone to be kind of down so everyone can cheer and chant ROH ROH does that a lot in their tag team matches but it definitely worked here it was built up to for a long time um Mark stopped Punk from uh, Pepsi plunging Jay and did a hands a springboard eights crusher. Then Cabana dropped Jay over his knee. It, there was like a double cover there and a kick out. kind of exposing right there that the referee waited till both guys were covering to pin, given that Mark had done his move way before. But um, Mark had a cutthroat driver on Colt, a cut driver on Colt. Punk broke that up. then Punk escaped the cutthroat, hit the Pepsi plunge on Mark, got the cover. Um, I thought the third fall was very like fast paced, exciting. The first, flo- the first fall, I felt like telegraphed things too much, but it got exciting when the Briscoes took over. But I thought all in all, it told a good story. It might have been kind of formulaic, but I thought it was a good, like a really good match. I don't think it was maybe quite as good as their first match in Chicago at Reborn Stage Two, but I thought it was very good. Um, I don't know how to give it star rating. Maybe like in borderline four stars. I don't know. I enjoyed it a lot though.
0: Yeah, I would give this like like three and three quarters. So I'm right, probably exactly feeling about how you did. Um, I thought this match was kind of the opposite of the last match where both of these matches are like the end of feuds. But I felt Homicide and Joe, they did something that was kind of different. I felt this was kind of just a longer version of everything they've done before. But I don't think that's a – I don't see that as a bad thing. It it just kind of felt – like these guys that were getting really comfortable with each other. And it was just a longer version because like you said, you laid out all the major beats. This is a very story oriented match. And it feels like a lot of these punk cabana tags from this era are kind of old school where they follow a very traditional story and structure where everything makes sense and it's all in parts. And so in this match, yeah, you get the first fall, which is, normal until Punk gets taken out and then the whole second fall is about Colt having to beat the odds one on two and and get an upset pin and then The third fall, you know, Punk saves the day in the nick of time, and then Colt eventually makes the hot tag to him. And then finally we get that standard kind of Ring of Honor final few-minute run where everyone's ignoring tags and we get some bigger moves. But, like, Punk and Cabana tags are never really about, like, thrill-a-minute, super – even though you do get plenty of action, I don't think the match ever really gets – too slow but it's never about like just big spot every every 15 seconds it's more their matches are more about some big spots but we're kind of telling a story and we have a very clear structure and i thought this was a good match for that except just like you said they probably could have cut out the first five or ten minutes of this match and still Not just cut it out because, oh, the match is too long, but because all that story beats that we just described, none of them are in the first 10 minutes. Like it felt like they just tacked on an extra 10 minutes at the start just to have a longer match. Like you could have cut that out and not lost any of the story. And the first 10 minutes weren't bad, but it's just like you said, you could tell they were wrestling in a way where you can tell they're just doing this because they have a lot of time. And they need to fill it. And it's almost like this is like an extra mini match before the match they actually have planned. And then once it kicks in, then it's a, it's a gets to be a, a match where I didn't feel like, oh, this is just extra stuff. I felt like, oh, no, this all makes sense. There's a reason why all this is here. Um, you also, I feel like, nailed the best spot where Colt pulls Jay's head down um, in that demolition decapitation knee. A really cool counter that I have just I don't recall ever seeing before. That's one of those moves someone should lift nowadays if they see. That. It's just a really cool counter. Um, find opponents that do a demolition decapitation, I guess, so you can steal that. Did, um, the, did the
1: Briscoes the, ever do it anymore?
0: I'm not sure. But the one other cool spot you kind of mentioned, but... I, uh, you didn't mention one part of it, which I thought was, there's a moment in the match where um, Punk is getting beat down and he's sitting on his butt in the corner, and one of the Briscoes goes to pull him out by the feet, and you think, oh no, Punk's going to do that thing where he like gets pulled. Up from by his feet, instead of just landing flat on his back, he like flips and lands on his feet, and that's actually how he tagged out. He the then ran to the other corner and made the hot tag in their last match. And I know this because in this match, I think Mark even yells at Jay during this, and the announcers point out too. No, remember last time, and that and so they ac- actually do not then do that move, and then instead do the move you described, which is where one Briscoe monkey flips the other into Punk, and then Punk like. Or he monkey flips one of the Punk and then Punk lands on his feet out of that and immediately makes the hot tag. So I felt like that was a really nice little – not just a callback. Like they literally pointed it out verbally. They were like, hey, everybody, look at this. We're, we've learned something. And <laughs> I, actually, I, I like when they reward you in that way for yes. watching older matches and – So, yeah, this is, again, not a – probably 10 minutes too long, but at the same time, I was never really bored by it, but I also felt like it probably would have been even better as like a 30-minute match instead of a near 40-minute match. But – yeah, uh, a fun way to end the feud, and like you said, the Briscoes healed a bit. Although they never really, especially compared to the Homicide performance, they never healed that bad. It just felt more like they had an edge to them and were healing a bit. And I guess that was the point because at the end of the match, all four guys shake hands. So
1: right, right. They're still, way. they're still baby faces. Yeah,
0: yeah. The Briscoes are doing what it takes to win, and they're willing to cross a line, but they're not like it's not a blood feud like the Homicide match. Right, but yeah, and and again, it's kind of weird, but. That ends the show because, again, no backstage segments. So the end is just them shaking hands and then a minute or two of uh, Punk and Cabana celebrating. Yep. And that brings us to the end of the show. Um, uh, this is a shorter, uh, shorter uh, podcast for us, but we still, I guess, have to give our opinions on what we thought of the show. I thought this was a good it, – it was a good show. It's weird. It, in a way – it kind of feels like a ring of honor B show. Like it's not quite the same effort maybe as some shows, but yet there was a lot of big matches on the show. Like every, I mean, um, uh, Shelly and Williams is, is a good singles match to get. And then, you know, technically you had two feuds ending on this night, even though it didn't feel like necessarily like a huge show in that sense. It's still in, when you think about kind of like, you know, the Homicide and Joe feud is wrapping up, at least the singles part of it. This tag feud is wrapping up. The, re- and- the return the return match of Loki, the big angle with yeah. Alice in Danger. And there was a lot of good, um, you know, I, I believe, it feels like we there's a lot of matches on this show that I, w- that I think one of us or both of us would rank like three and three quarter or right on the verge of four. And then maybe Joe and Homicide we'd put a little above that, but like, There's a lot of very good matches on the show. You know, the the Gen Next tag, too, really good.
1: Honestly, I would say say in the ring, this is one of the best ROH shows ever, honestly, in terms of consistency and quality. Like, uh, you know, obviously it doesn't have that epic feel as some other shows. But, like, just in terms of, like, consistently good wrestling and, like, good wrestling matches, this is up there.
0: Yeah, it's funny because it's not a show... It's almost like, although I would put this in Ringwise wise as better than this show, but, like, it's almost like the WrestleMania 14 of Ring of Honor shows where there's nothing that's going to be, like, a match-of-the-year candidate. But I remember at the time, the thought about WrestleMania 14 was, like, pretty much everything is enjoyable on some level.
1: Yeah, although if you yeah, watch so back cool. at WrestleMania 14 now, there, you know, a lot of those matches are just not good. <laughs> they are enjoyable, yeah. though. But, the, but the, the wrestling here is, like, quality. Like, this is good wrestling on this show.
0: Yeah, the, the wrestling... Yeah, and it's just a, uh, and uh, when when you stack up all the important things like you added in the, some of the other things like Low Key's return match, more on the show, do, it, it kind of shows you how. I, again, I think this is a really one of the best periods of gay booking, where even on a show where you can say at the end, oh, not it, it wasn't, a, it was a B show, quote unquote. When you actually think of everything that happened, you know there was quite a bunch of, you know, quite a bit of stuff happening on the show
1: yeah i think this was a really good show i think this is a uh if if anybody were to watch this dvd back now i think it holds up pretty well except for some of like you know the tropes um but it's no this was good stuff the quality like yeah like again not like the most important show in roh history by a long shot or even the most important show of the weekend but it's um it's a good show like a, a very good wrestling show
0: and so next time we'll be covering Death Before Dishonor 2 a night 2 the very next night they went to Chicago and that's got another really good looking lineup we've got Colcabana Cabana challenging Samoa Joe for the world title we've got Low Key versus Mark Briscoe we've got Jay Briscoe versus Homicide in a rematch from a recent show we have uh, the big street fight in the main event, which I remember getting good reviews, and I remember enjoying it. We'll see how it holds up, but A Steel and Punk versus Moth and Whitmer, just a you know another show where they're really, you can really tell that the depth—if just looking at the lineup—is really improved. They're really in a golden era for the roster depth because there's just so many good wrestlers and interesting matches up and down the card on paper.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. I remember that being one of my favorites, also.
0: And so for, for plugs, we've got, a uh, on Twitter at Trevor Dame uh, uh, is mine. Um at mayor MGF is Matt's. Uh, we've got tr- through the years at gmail.com. That's T H R O H for through. Uh, we have a thread on the plug section of the pro wrestling only message board. And yeah, that's, uh, mostly I, that's all the plugs, I guess. Matt, is there? It's weird. This show, just because when you take out all the backstage segments, the the podcast runs quicker. So it's I keep looking at the time and going, huh? We're already done. But well, maybe uh, as you say,
1: maybe that'll incentivize us to get the next one in soon.
0: Yeah, and what, what's a short show for us is still probably like a long podcast for uh, rational people. Yeah, people that true. Don't do wrestling podcasts.
1: An hour and a half, but,
0: I'd say, is still a pretty long podcast. Exactly. And again, if, if you want more of Matt and I, we're on uh, the five-star match game, which should be coming any day now or might already be out by the time you listen to this. So if, when you add them together, it's a normal length episode. That's right. Um, so until next time, have a good time. Have a great time. Wash your dang hands.